You know, it's interesting, for 2,000 years, people have been asking the question that our kids explored this morning. Who is this child? Who is this child 2,000 years ago that has made such an impact that to even to this day, you can pack a, a sanctuary full of people to come and, and celebrate his arrival? Who is this? Who is this child? 700 years before the arrival of Jesus Christ, the prophet Isaiah gave us an answer as to who this child was going to be. Pastor Stephen last week opened our Christmas series for us and provided some background for us on Isaiah's prophecy. Just a, a quick reminder, the people of Israel were facing God's judgment. They had rebelled against him, and God was sending the Assyrian Empire against Israel, and he was going to take them away in, in to, as part of his judgment. But in that, God gave his people a promise that this wasn't going to be the end, that, that hope was still to be had, and hope was to be found in the promise that he was going to send a deliverer, a savior, the, the one the Jews looked forward to as the Messiah. And Isaiah, 700 years before the arrival of this Messiah, told the people of Israel who this Messiah was going to be. In one of the great prophecies of the Bible, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, the prophet gives us four names, four names that would identify for God's people the reality of the Messiah to come. The prophet declares, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. What incredible names. Titles of the Messiah, the, the one that God's people were to look forward to. The one that we recognize has come in the person of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago, that first Christmas. Last week, Pastor Stephen began our exploration of these titles, looking at the reality of Jesus as our wonderful counselor. And today, we're going to continue our exploration of these titles, looking at Jesus as our mighty God. You know, have you ever thought about that, friends? What does it mean to see in Jesus our mighty God? We're going to explore that together this morning. Uh, this past uh, week, I just got home from uh, teaching for a week in Maui, Hawaii, um, I got to tell you, man, this Minnesota weather has not been good on my tan the last week. But, uh, but we had a great time. I was able to go uh, teach for Youth with a Mission, a great mission organization. Uh, they have a base there in Maui. There were 85 students there. I was teaching a group of young people who just this week left on a mission to Southeast Asia. They're going to be serving uh, for the next six months in Thailand and India. And then another team that I was ministering to, teaching, uh, is heading to the Middle East and going to be doing ministry in Israel over the next six months. And had a great time to share with them uh, the, uh, the whole discipline of apologetics, why we believe what we believe as Christians, giving an answer, a reason for our faith. And we had a great time of teaching. Uh, during my time there, and, and I had brought my family along with me, I uh, had some free time during the day. Uh, most of my afternoons I had free, and so one of my favorite things to do, uh, I've been to Hawaii a few times, but one of my favorite things to do when I'm in Hawaii, obviously, is you go to the beach, right? And uh, I can't even, words can't do justice 
how amazing the beaches there are in Maui. I mean, you're walking on this, you know, warm, white, powdery sand. I mean, it just like melts through your toes. It's just incredible. You walk along the ocean, you know, and the waves are just lapping up against the shoreline. And you, you look out in the distance, this crystal clear blue water. And out in the distance, whale spouts are shooting up out in the ocean. I mean, it's just incredible. I mean, like literally, it just blows your mind. But as incredible as all that is, then you can put on one of these, a, a, a snorkeling mask. And you can put on this snorkeling mask, and all of a sudden, a whole new world is opened up to you. You put on this mask, and then you dive into that beautiful blue water. And pretty soon, you realize, there's sea turtles here swimming around. I, I was literally swimming with sea turtles. I mean, how cool is that? It was like living in a National Geographic episode or something. I'm swimming with sea turtles, and I'm seeing hundreds of just some of the most beautiful fish you can imagine. I mean, indescribable how beautiful these fish are. And I'm seeing beautiful coral all around me. And, 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 and it's just incredible what this mask opens up and what you can see through it. Now, here's the thing. I can look at the ocean, and I can appreciate the ocean, and I can recognize the magnificence of the ocean without the mask, but friends, when I put the mask on, I recognize that the ocean is far more brilliant, far more wonderful and glorious than I could have ever imagined, even seeing it without the mask. And in the very same way, when we look to Jesus Christ, when we look to Jesus Christ, we begin to see God in a whole new light. We begin to understand and recognize the mightiness of God in ways that we can't fathom apart from Jesus Christ. Now, you don't need Jesus to recognize that God is mighty. I mean, we can see God's might in creation. We can see God's might throughout Scripture. We can see God's might in his work in our own lives. But friends, when we look through Jesus we begin to understand God's mightiness, his glory, his majesty in ways that we can't fathom without recognizing Jesus as our mighty God. And so this morning, I want to explore what this means. I want to explore what it means for us to see through Jesus our mighty God. And specifically, I want to highlight for you today seven ways, seven unique and incredible ways that we come to see our mighty God more clearly through the person of Jesus Christ, the one who came into this world 2,000 years ago, that first Christmas. The first way that we see God's might in Jesus, we see through Jesus God's might in a manger. You know, it's very interesting when you think about the idea of Jesus as our mighty God. You know, one of the questions that have troubled skeptics of Christianity for the last 2,000 years is the question of why did so many of God's people, the Jewish people, miss out on Jesus? You know, we, we claim that Jesus was the Messiah, but why did so many Jewish people 2,000 years ago miss out on Jesus as the Messiah? And friends, I would argue that one of the reasons why they missed out on Jesus as the Messiah is because they were looking in all the wrong places. They weren't looking to the manger. They were looking to places like Masada. 
You see, in the ancient world, in the first century, the Jewish people, when the, when the idea of might came to mind, one of the first images that would have come into their consciousness was King Herod in his palace that rose 1,500 feet over the Judean wilderness, a palace known as Masada. You can still go and visit the, the archaeological remains of Masada today. You can go to the top of the mountain. You can see the remains of Herod's palace. On the right there is a, is a replica of what Masada would have looked like in Jesus' day. But you see, the Jewish people 2,000 years ago, when they thought of might, they thought of people like Caesar Augustus, the emperor of Rome. They thought of people like King Herod. Herod the Great, for Pete's sake. I mean, we don't call him the Great for nothing. We call him the Great because this guy lives in palaces of stone that tower over the whole land. That's greatness. That's mightiness. And so the Jewish people were waiting for this Messiah that had been prophesied to them 700 years earlier. He's, our, he's going to be our mighty God. And of course, our mighty God is going to come as a conquering king. Our mighty God is going to come in incredible fortresses and palaces like Masada. But friends, God says might doesn't come through places like Masada. At Christmas, God said to his people, might comes in a manger. And you see, God's people missed the Messiah because they were looking for their mighty God in the wrong places. Might in God's economy doesn't come through the Masadas of this world. True might comes in a manger. The Apostle Paul describes who Jesus was and what he did and gives us a clearer picture of what true might looks like in God's economy. Paul says in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, that very first Christmas, 2,000 years ago, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, friends, the world looks for might in places like Masada. God says true might. True might is found in a manger. True might is found in selflessness, in humility, in sacrifice, in service. And that's what we see in the person of Jesus Christ. We see our mighty God who humbled himself so that we could know him, so that we could come into a relationship with him. The second way that we see through Jesus, God's might. Through Jesus, we see God's might in a man. A man, Jesus, a life that literally transformed history. William Leckie, the noted 19th century historian, speaks without exaggeration when he declares the simple record of three short years of Christ's active life has done more to regenerate mankind than any other influence that has ever been felt on earth. Yes, friends, Jesus Christ, our mighty God, literally brought about a transformation of humanity. His impact is undeniable. When you study history, it becomes irrefutably clear that it is directly because of Jesus and his ministry that today we celebrate 
things like human rights. We promote education. We advocate health care, pursue science, foster compassion for the poor and downtrodden, celebrate and champion liberty and representative government, and so much more. Friends, these are all because of Jesus. Only because of Jesus. Consider this morning. He wasn't an author. Yet more books have been written about him than any other man who ever lived. He was not a poet. Yet his sayings can be found chiseled into granite shrines all over the world. He was not a musician. Yet he inspired the likes of Mozart, Schubert, Beethoven, and Handel. He was not a painter, yet he provided the vision for Raphael, Michelangelo, and Rembrandt. He was not a statesman, yet he motivated abolitionists, revolutionaries, and reformers the world over. He was not a geographer, yet cities all over the world bear names that testify to his legacy. He wasn't a scientist. Yet many of history's most prominent scientists looked to him for guidance. He wasn't an emperor, yet his kingdom today is spread across the globe. And we could go on and on talking about the impact of Jesus Christ. Friends, his life and impact is undeniable. As Ralph Waldo Emerson once noted, Jesus' name is not so much written as plowed into the history of the world. Who else but our mighty God could leave such a legacy? Thirdly, this morning, through Jesus, we see God's might in a message, a message different from every other religion in the history of the world. Friends, what is religion? Religion is about how men and women can enter into a relationship with God through their good works, through their sacrifices, through their rituals, through their money. Religion is about proving your worthiness to God. Religion is about earning your right to enter into God's presence. But understand this morning, Jesus Christ didn't come to share a new path of religion with us. Jesus Christ shared a very different message. One of the great stories in the Bible is found in John chapter 3. It's the story of one of the most religious men in Israel at the time of Jesus, a man by the name of Nicodemus. He was one of the Jewish Pharisees, one of the Jewish members of the Sanhedrin, one of the religious leaders of Israel. When people thought of religion, they thought of people like Nicodemus. And Nicodemus one night came to Jesus in secret, asking him how to have a right relationship with God. Jesus, what more do we need to do? What is real religion. And Jesus didn't share with Nicodemus another religious path. Jesus told Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Nicodemus said, Lord, how on earth can I be born again? How, how can a man enter into his mother's womb again? And Jesus said, I'm not talking about a physical birth. I'm talking about a rebirth spiritually. You need to be born again. And how do you do this? Jesus said in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. 
You see, friends, the reality of how we can be born again, how we can experience new life, it comes through belief in Jesus Christ. Later in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 6, some of Jesus' followers were still unclear on this reality. And they came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, what are the works that God requires of us? Remember, they're still thinking religion, what we have to do, what we have to prove, what we have to do to earn God's favor. Jesus, what are the works God requires of us? And in John 6, 28 and 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. You want to do works? Here's the works you need to do. Believe in the one whom he has sent. It was always about faith. It was always about putting our trust in Jesus, God's Messiah, the Savior of the world. It wasn't about proving our worth or earning our way to God. It was about believing in the one who God sent for us. Jesus goes on in John 1, 12. And in John 1, 12, John, the apostle, the author of the gospel of John, tells us that to all who received him, Jesus Christ, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. See, friends, the message of Jesus Christ is not a message of religion. It's a message of how we can enter into a personal relationship with our creator, God by believing in him, by trusting in him, by accepting his gift of salvation, a, a gift of grace. You know, one of the favorite things that we all look forward to at Christmas time are, are giving and receiving presents, right? I, I love Christmas morning when we all gather around the Christmas tree and we share our presents with one another. But you see, the thing about a present that makes it a gift, a gift is something that is freely given. Right? If I, if I hold out a gift to my son Caleb on Christmas morning and I say, Caleb, here's a gift, but by the way, I want you to go shovel the driveway first. <laughs> All of a sudden, that's not a gift anymore, is it? That's something that he has to earn. A gift is something that's freely given with no strings attached. But the other thing about a gift is a gift needs to be freely received. Unless we receive that gift... We can't experience the wonder and blessing and joy of it. And God at Christmas holds out to each of us a gift. It's not a gift of religion. It's a gift about a personal relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't buy it. It's a free gift, but you need to receive it. The fourth way through Jesus Christ that we see God's might is in a mediator. We see God's might in a mediator. Why is believing in Jesus sufficient for our salvation? Why is believing in Jesus all that God requires of us? The reason why we need not do anything more than believe in Jesus is because God has provided us a mediator through him. The Apostle Paul, writing in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, he says, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus became our mediator. He became our way, our way to reconciliation with God. What does it mean that Jesus is our mediator? Let me share a story about some sheep with you. 
When I was a senior in high school, I had the opportunity to go to New Zealand. My, my dad was a Christian uh, evangelist and apologist, and he was teaching in New Zealand, and I got to go with him. We spent three weeks there in New Zealand, and while we were there, we spent some time, we stayed with some people who lived on a sheep ranch in New Zealand. Now, New Zealand's an interesting country because in New Zealand, there are 5 million people, but 50 million sheep. I mean, I'm not kidding you. There's sheep everywhere in New Zealand. And, and they, they eat sheep like we eat beef here in America. I mean, sheep everywhere, right? Well, we're staying on this sheep ranch in New Zealand. And while we were there, the, the sheep ranchers told us an interesting story. They, they shared with us how sometimes in the flock of sheep or the herd of sheep, what is it, a flock or a herd? I think you go either way, right? Sometimes in the flock of sheep, when the mother ewes are giving birth to the baby lambs, Sometimes during the birthing process, a mother you will die while giving birth to a lamb, and she'll, she'll orphan a little baby lamb. And somewhere else in the flock, a mother you will give birth to a stillborn, a, a dead lamb. And, and so the sheep ranchers, what they'll do is they'll, they'll try to take that little orphan lamb who lost its mother, and they'll try to bring it to the mother you who lost her baby. But here's the thing. The mother, you, who lost her baby, she can smell that little orphan lamb. And she can smell that that lamb is not her baby. And she will kick it away. She won't allow it to come to her presence to feed and suckle. But the sheep ranchers have discovered something really incredible. See, the sheep ranchers discovered that if they take that dead, stillborn lamb, and if they cut that lamb open and take the blood of that lamb, and cover the coat of the orphan lamb with the blood of the dead lamb, the stillborn. When they cover that lamb with the blood, they then bring that lamb to the mother who lost her baby, and now she smells the blood that covers that lamb. And she recognizes that blood, that this is my baby, and she will always then allow that lamb to come into her presence. And I thought to myself when I heard that, what a great illustration of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. You see, none of us can enter into God's holy presence on our own because of our sin. We've all rebelled against God. We've all fallen short of his holiness, of his glory, of his righteous standards. And because of our sin and our rebellion against him and because of his holiness, we can never enter into his presence. But you see, God provided a mediator in his son, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross and shed his blood, he did that for you and for me. Jesus' blood provides a covering for each of us. His blood covers us and covers our sins so that when God looks upon our hearts, he no longer sees us in our sinful rebellion, but he sees the shed blood of Jesus that covers us. And it's because of the blood of Jesus that we can then enter into God's holy, righteous presence. This is why the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took our sin upon himself. He shed his blood for our sake to cover over our sin so that through him we could come back into a right relationship with God. Isn't that amazing, friends? That's why Jesus came 2,000 years ago, to make a way. He's our mediator. Fifthly, this morning through Jesus, we see God's might in a morning. Easter Sunday morning, the, the greatest demonstration of the might of God. 
that ever was. The Apostle Paul, in the opening words of the book of Romans, Romans 1, 3 through 4, Paul affirms that Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Friends, the greatest proof of all that Jesus is our mighty God is the fact that after his crucifixion, three days later, on Easter Sunday morning, Jesus Christ conquered the grave. He truly is our mighty God. A few weeks ago, right before Easter, my son Caleb and I were up in northern Wisconsin at our cabin. We were driving home. We were heading uh, west out of Turtle Lake on Highway 8, coming back here to Lindstrom. And as we drove out in the distance in the fields out there, we saw a black plume of smoke rising up into the sky. I mean, thick black smoke. Now, we were far enough away, we, we couldn't see the source. But friends, that black smoke immediately told us that miles up ahead, what we couldn't see was a fire. The, the smoke was the sign, right? Where there's smoke, there's fire. And sure enough, as we drove closer and got closer, we discovered that there was a field, a massive grass fire going on right off of Highway 8. But the smoke had given evidence of the fire. And here's the reality. We can't go back in time 2,000 years ago. We can't go back and see the original event of Easter Sunday and the resurrection of Jesus that proves his might. But what we can see today is the smoke. We can still see the smoke of that event, the smoke that still resonates throughout history. We see the smoke in the empty tomb, the reality that the Jews, the Christians, the Romans all agreed that Jesus was buried in a tomb and that three days later, that same tomb that they all agreed upon was empty. No one ever disputed it. We, we see the smoke in the reality of over 500 eyewitnesses that are mentioned in the scripture who say they saw Jesus with their own eyes. The apostle Paul who reveals that to us wrote those words 20 years after the event which means that many of those 500 people who saw Jesus were still alive at the time. Now again, if you're making up a story, if a story's not true, why do you encourage people to go and check with the 500 eyewitnesses? who Paul says many of which were still alive. We, we see the smoke of the resurrection and the reality of the, the radically transformed lives. The disciples who went from fearful and hiding shortly after the crucifixion of Jesus to just weeks later boldly standing in the courtyard of the temple in Jerusalem proclaiming that Jesus truly was the Messiah that the Jewish people had been awaiting. They had no fear, even for their own lives. In fact, 11 of the 12 disciples would eventually die martyrs' deaths because they were convinced that they had seen Jesus risen from the grave. He had conquered death. We see the smoke of the resurrection and the reality of the rapid spread of the early church in a first century Jewish culture hostile to any competing religions. A first century Jewish context, a country occupied by the tyrannical Roman Empire. The Jews didn't want the church to spread. The Romans didn't want the church to spread. And yet we know as a historical fact that the church grew like a wildfire. How does that happen unless it's as those earlier followers declared, Jesus was the risen Savior. 
We see the smoke of the resurrection and Jesus' impact on history, which I mentioned earlier. We see the smoke of the resurrection and the reality of personal testimonies that we could share here in this room all day long about the ways that Jesus has changed our lives. Yes, friends, make no mistake about it. We worship a risen Savior. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ declares emphatically that he is our mighty God. Number six, through Jesus, we see God's might in a movement. Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it, Matthew 16, 18. And then Jesus commissioned us, his followers, to participate in the mission of building his church. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus told his followers, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Friends, make no mistake, Jesus has kept his word. For the past 2,000 years, he has been building his church, and he has never once abandoned his people. Against all odds, Christ's church continues to grow and thrive even to this day. Tyrants have tried to destroy it. Dictators have tried to suppress it. Terrorists have tried to intimidate it. But Jesus continues to build his church. His movement can't be stopped. I saw a great testament to this reality this past week when I was teaching in Maui. One of the young ladies in my class was a, was a young lady from Germany. And she is one of the group that was traveling to India over the next six months. Well, they discovered last week, just four days before they're to leave for India, that her German passport wouldn't be accepted in India. See, India requires that your passport be valid for at least a year after your entry point into the country. Her passport was only six months, uh, only lasted six months past her entry point into the country. So India wasn't going to allow her in. So they went to the consulate in Honolulu. They called the consulate in Honolulu, the, the leadership at YWAM there, and they said, hey, we've got this young lady. She needs to get to India, but her passport's only six months long. Can you, can you give her an extra, can you give her an extension? Can you give her a new passport? The consulate in Honolulu, the German consulate, they said, no, it's impossible. It would take a minimum of three to four weeks. They said, we don't have three to four weeks. We have three to four days. We're leaving to go to India. They said, why don't you fly her over here? We'll see what we can do. This young lady, she flew over to Honolulu last Thursday. The people back at the base in Maui were praying. Honolulu told her it was impossible. It would take three to four weeks. The people in YWAM were praying that she would get a passport in three to four hours. Last Thursday night, we got a call from this young lady, Melissa, from Honolulu. She said they gave me a new passport. Friends, Make no mistake about it. We serve a God who's still doing miracles. Jesus Christ is our mighty God. And his movement can't be stopped. Seventh this morning, lastly, through Jesus Christ, we see God's might in amending. Jesus has promised that one day he's going to make all things new. I was talking recently with my friend Joel Preston. He's the pastor of the Free Church up in Pine City, just north of us here. Joel and his church have a really neat tradition he was telling me about. Every Christmas season, they do a blue Christmas service. 
And I said, well, what's that all about? And he explained to me, he said, you know, Jason, Christmas isn't always a, a happy, cheerful time for all people. He said, a lot of people in our church I've discovered are really hurting at Christmas time. They're mourning the loss of loved ones who have passed away. They're struggling with sickness and disease. A lot of burdens in this world. And so a few years ago, we started a blue Christmas service, which is an opportunity for us to come together and just acknowledge to the Lord our hurt, our pain, our need for him, our need for hope, our need for healing. For some, it's a memorial service, thinking of loved ones who have gone home to be with the Lord. For others, it's just a time for the Lord to minister to their hearts. I thought, wow, what a great idea. Blue Christmas service. But you know, friends, I want to tell you something this morning. As great of an idea that is, one day there's going to be no more blue Christmases. Jesus tells us he's going to come again. And when he comes again, he's going to make all things new. One of the great promises that Jesus gives us is found in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. John, in his vision of the new heaven and the new earth, he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. Who is that voice? It's Jesus Christ, the one who came in a manger 2,000 years ago, and the one who sits enthroned in heaven today, the risen Savior, And the voice from the throne said to John, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Friends, one day there won't be any more blue Christmases. Jesus is going to mend this broken world. And he's going to make all things new. And he's going to wipe away all our tears. And he's going to usher us into a glorious new world. In his presence, free of death and sickness and crying and pain. It's no wonder Titus 2.13 calls Jesus our blessed hope. Let me ask you this morning, are you seeing more clearly the reality of our mighty God? Do you see how through Jesus God's might is most brilliantly and gloriously displayed? Friends, this is why we worship Jesus this Christmas season. This is why we put our hope fully in him. He is our mighty God. Our world today is filled with all kinds of little gods, puny gods, gods that can never truly satisfy the desires of our hearts. We pursue gods like money and sex and status and power and fame, and all these gods promise fulfillment, but they can't deliver because they're weak gods. But Jesus Christ is not a weak God. He's our mighty God. And unless you look to him for a personal relationship, unless you look to him for true satisfaction, you will go through life perpetually dissatisfied. It's like John Piper once said, if you can't see the sun, you'll be impressed with streetlights. If you've never felt thunder and lightning, you'll be impressed with fireworks. If you turn your back on the greatness and majesty of God, 
You'll fall in love with a world of shadows and short-lived pleasures. Friends, Jesus Christ is no weak God. He's no small God. He's no shadow. He's no short-lived pleasure. Jesus Christ is the mighty God. And the most amazing reality of all this Christmas season is that this mighty God, Jesus Christ, desires a personal relationship with you. Do you know him? Have you put your hope in him? Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the message of Christmas. We thank you that 2,000 years ago you sent your son in this world so that we might know who you are and see you more clearly to understand what it means that you are our mighty God. We see your might in full display in the person of Jesus Christ, the one we celebrate this Christmas season. Thank you, Jesus, for coming into this world. Thank you for sharing, us, sharing with us your message of life and hope and abundance. Thank you for being our mediator, the one who forgives us of our sins. Thank you for your promises of a hope for the future, your mending and making of all things new one day. In so many ways, Jesus, we see through you the reality of our mighty God, and so we give you all the honor, glory, and praise this Christmas season. I pray that nobody here this morning would miss out on the reality of the joy, the life that comes through a personal relationship with you. I pray that they would put their hope and trust in you, and that in you they would come to know the mighty God who loves us, the mighty God who desires a relationship with us. If there's anybody here this morning who hasn't put their hope in you, Jesus, even right now in the quiet of their own heart, I just pray that they might turn to you and say, Jesus, I know I've sinned against you. And today I want to accept you as my mediator, as my savior, as my Messiah. Jesus, show yourself to be my mighty God because today I put my trust in you. And Lord, in that prayer, may they come to know life and life abundant which is found only in you. We thank you, Lord, for your great promises to us. May this just be the ongoing celebration of a great Christmas season as we continue to look to you and honor you as our Messiah, our hope, our Savior. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Friends, would you stand for our benediction this morning? It comes from the book of Jude, verses 1 and 2. Now to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. God bless you, and have a great Christmas season. Amen. Hey, friends, thanks for joining us online today. If you have further questions, are in need of prayer, or would like to give financially to the ministries of Lakes Free Church, I encourage you to visit our website, lakesfree.org. There you'll also find information regarding our upcoming events. You can access all of our past sermon series, along with a host of other valuable resources. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us in person for one of our Sunday services or other events. We'd love to meet you. Thanks again for joining us, and may God bless you.